After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. I guess I grew up on an older road. Hey, everybody. Episode 124 coming at you. Uh, it is a beautiful day here in Montana, and I'm joined by Pat Dirk. And say, hey, Pat. Nice talking to you, Ben. That's good to have you on. Um, yeah. It's long, long overdue. Uh, if you, if you don't know anything about Pat, shame on you, you bastards. Um, go over to themediator.com and and find his contributor page. And you, you'll have hours and hours and hours of wonderful reading of all the stuff that Pat's done over the last. How long have you been writing for Mediator, Pat? Just almost two years now. That's I awesome. Start, I think I think I got my first assignment from Steve in May of early May of two thousand eighteen. So, yeah, almost two years. Well, that's awesome. We're all, we also have Spencer Newharth. Say, hey, Spencer. Hey, Ben. Hey, Pat. And hey, Phil. Hey, Senior. The baritone <laughs> badass. Uh, yeah. We're going to we're gonna get to... I was just reading your article, Spencer, about Three Toes. We're going to get to the legend of Three Toes here in a moment. But um, there, there's been a lot of people out of uh, your neck of the woods, South Dakota, that have uh, pretty awesome nicknames, you know? As you as you wrote in the article, so I'll let you go through that later. But you need to think about if the baritone badass is something you want to stick or not. <laughs> to think about it. Okay. Um, and then we have Phil, first crap in the woods, Taylor. Hey, buddy. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Good. Are you ready for what's about to go down? Not at all. Let's do it. Okay. Well, I was just telling everybody before we hit record here that. We were inundated, as one might expect, with first crap in the woods stories slash my dog eats human feces stories. <laughs> as much as I love reading both of those, I'm a little I'm a little worn out, a little burned out. I tried to read them all, so thank you for everybody for sending them in. Um, Phil, how's the, how's it been on your end? You've been getting a lot of feedback. Has it been really just taking over your life? It's, it's a big deal. Uh, <laughs> it's not quite taking over my life yet, but um, I I went for a beautiful hike. This uh, this weekend in the Gallatin Canyon, posted a, a little little Instagram story, just thinking I would uh, just put some good content out there in the world. Instead, I was just inundated with um, replies along the lines of "Hey, why didn't you take a shit up there?" or "Hey, go take a crap behind that tree." Um, That's right. So I'd like to thank you and thank the audience for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd like I'd like to also thank them. Please forward me every single one of those comments. Uh, this is what keeps me going during quarantine. It's this kind of chatter. We have a lot. We have so many emails 
Pat Dirk, and we I, I don't know if I can't, can't even read them all. Um, there's so many, so there's like thousand word stories. There's a bunch, but um, Bryant Lumen wrote in and he said that um, I'm gonna have to summarize as many of these as I can, but he was taking a shit in the woods, his first shit in the woods in Wisconsin, and ah. uh, your neck of the woods there. And he went to squat to take the shit, and he forgot that a lot of times when you take a shit, you also urinate. And so he peed into his pants while he had cleared the back end. The front end wasn't clear. And so as he says, he started pissing directly into my pants that were around my ankles. He said, I was able to redirect and minimize the damage, but I still had to drop a few wet layers when I got back to the car. Luckily, it was getting warmer. And they weren't really needed by that. So that's really what we're going through. Pat, you've been telling me a few. You got a few gems from this uh, genre. You want to lay one out there? You can leave well, You can leave the names out if you wish. Yeah. Well, the, well, the first thing that made me laugh was um, I was telling, I got to kick on a Phil story that I was telling my wife about it. And she, uh, I said, you know, yeah, Phil, I'm guessing Phil, you must be about, Late twenties. That's right, twenty nine. Okay, and I I said something like, "Yeah, Phil's late twenties and has never taken a crap in the woods." And my wife got this thoughtful look in her face. You know, she's sixty one, and she says, "Yeah, I don't think I don't think I have either." So that kind of (laughs) shocked me because I've taken them. You know, when when the kids were around, we used to go up up to Canada every summer and go fishing and. We used to make bathroom breaks quite often. You know, I'd drop them off in these islands, and then Penny would go off the girls in the woods and come back. And I kind of assumed that would happen at some point, but apparently not. Then the other one was um, again involving my daughters. I I used to always take them up to um, the Michigan's up Upper Peninsula, which is about a four-hour drive straight north of me, and I'd go up there and spend the weekend with them, um, scouting deer and looking for places to hunt, and they were all preschoolers when I first started doing that and I brought them home and came home from work one day and my wife was somewhat amused but also a bit irritated that um we live right we used to live right on Main Street in a town called Amro, Wisconsin, which is west of Oshkosh, you know, Wisconsin geography at all. And um yeah, apparently my daughters decided to go to the bathroom out there in the front lawn of our yard <laughs> on Main Street and First of all, I was kind of proud of them, but um, my wife wasn't all that thrilled, so I kind of explained to them that there's proper places to go outside, you know, and there's improper places to go outside, and the yard is not a proper place for this kind of kind of stuff. So, yeah, that was that, that was my my tamer version of a Phil story. That's, I mean, Phil's Phil's story really, Pat, is bringing people together. So many people have yeah. realized through this that both their dogs are. You know, don't need help. They are normal, and and you know, people having these realizations that they have never crapped in the woods either. I got a lot of those too. A lot of those on, a lot of those messages on Instagram. People like, I never thought about that. I've never taken a shit in the woods before, and so it's really a story of you know coming together around a tough time to to talk about these issues. You know, and be open about what you're doing out there. Spencer, you got anything to add here? My favorite story is of. like this buddy's uncle and they were out for opening day of deer hunting and 
there was this weird shift that I feel like happened maybe like 15 or 20 years ago where prior to that, every deer hunter, hardcore uh, or like amateur or really casual or otherwise, everybody wore like these one piece jumpsuit bibs that were made by Carhartt or Dickies or whoever. Um, is that familiar to you guys or is that like a regional thing where I'm from? Did everybody at one point just like wear these giant one? Oh, no. Yeah. Yeah. That was common. Especially I remember in the seventies when I started hunting, those are real common. Yeah. Yeah. When I started hunting, that's all we wore. And that's like funny to think about. Um, you you know, I can't imagine that's ever going to show up in a first light website is, uh, you know, the, the whole one piece bib suit but anyway that's just like what everybody wore and it's worth knowing that for this story uh this uncle had to take a crap and um like did his business and finished up and went to pull up his one piece thing and flung his hood over his head and also just threw feces like all over himself because he didn't (laughs) account for the fact that uh he had just taken off this entire layer of clothing that was right below uh, and then that's where some of it landed so that was a different time, certainly. All right. Well, Spencer, like I don't – I've never had any emergency situations like that, but, you know, you, everybody's had had their story. So it's good. Like I said, it's like gathering around a campfire. Um, but that campfire is a pile of shit in, um, in Phil's case. So thank you. I just want to say thank you, Phil. We're going to let that go. Thanks for all the emails. Keep sending them in. Um, we may do a whole podcast where we just read these. I tried to count. <laughs> I've been trying to count since we hit record, and I, we're up to we're over a hundred emails and a lot. Like some of the, I could just read you some of the Phil's poopy predicament, Phil's first pile in the woods, Phil's dog problem, canoes shitting and friendship. <laughs> so there's just so many, so many great emails in there. So I'm sorry I can't read them all, but we don't want to hover too long on. <laughs> on uh on this topic uh, lest we turn into a whole different podcast um so this is there's it's an easy transition um uh, michael <laughs> michael skull wrote in this michael skull wrote and he said in the title of his email was would you eat it um and you may know of this area another wisconsinite uh pat he said i mm-hmm. i he owns some land in the poplar river uh near poplar wisconsin okay He's way up there. He's way up there in the hinterlands. Yeah. Uh, he found, he said, every day I, I drive over the river twice on my way to and from work. One evening as I crossed the bridge, I noticed two dark subjects hum, hung up on a snag in the river below. I had to investigate what was going on. As my dog and I went down closer, I saw that this was two Jake turkeys that had been dumped off the bridge. This is not an uncommon sight, but when I pulled... Then to the shore, I was disgusted at what I saw. The jakes were simply breasted out, breasted and then tossed out. And a thought ran through my head. These cannot be but a day old because they weren't here this morning, and they were in the cool water of the river all day. I wonder if I can save the legs. His question to us is, what would we do? Would we take the legs and cook them up and eat them? Um, I think he actually did, but he wanted to know... Is he just desperate, or do we think that's a good idea, Pat? What do you think about that? I um, my initial reaction. They say when this happened, must have just happened, huh? Yeah, it must have just happened. He didn't yeah. say exactly uh, when, but this year, this spring. My 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 first reaction is say definitely take them, um, at least take them and then check them out. But I'm guessing that 
it's still be in good shape. You know, because it's still, it's been pretty cold. It's still like early May. Waters are still running cold up there. I'd say it's a pretty good chance there is still good. So I guess that'd be my 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 answer. Spencer, I'd be, I'd, I'd be eating them. <laughs> Me too, Spencer. Yeah, I think it's I think it's easy to be like, oh yeah, I would have done it. I would have taken them for sure. But uh, it would be difficult to come upon an animal that you don't know how long it's been there or who put it there or what might be in that water and be like, yeah, I'd take it. So I, I'm not real confident that I would. And I'm somebody who's all for taking roadkill or if someone has excess game that they don't, they're not interested in cleaning themselves or gutting, I'm all for taking that. But that would be a tough situation. Uh, and I really commend him if he did do it. Well, here's his story. He said, I decided I would remove the two sets of legs and take them up to the house for closer inspection. I cleaned them up the best I could but they had a very pale color from being in the river for eight hours. That night, I put all four in the crock pot and let them cook all night while I slept, <clears throat> dreaming of my own turkey hunt that would be coming in the middle of May. In the end, I did eat a few bites of meat, but the smell of the cooked meat was not as I remember. In the end, his dog June enjoyed a few nights of cooked dark turkey meat with her kibble. <laughs> That's uh, Till then, keep your powder dry and your whistle wet. Michael Skull. Um, I, I like the, I like what he did there. I'm all for mm -hmm. it. I feel like yeah. you, you take the meat, you examine it. And then if you feel like you can go through the next step, you cook it up. And then if it's not, uh, it's not to your liking and there's a, a dog running around, it's just fine. It's better than, better in that case than sitting around in the woods, uh, in the river. So I, I'll give you some credit there, Michael, but I, I appreciate mm -hmm. the question because I think about that pretty much every time I cross any piece of roadkill, um, that's visible from the road. I think about it. Um, I've taken them before. I do that a lot, but you gotta, you gotta look and, and ask those questions. Now, Phil, since you're a non hunter, um, have you ever eaten roadkill? This may be your next, uh, big story that you need to tell us. <laughs> no, I have not. I have not eaten roadkill. Haven't had the opportunity. Um, Yanni was telling a story about how someone hit a moose near his house and he just got the whole moose and it was in pretty good condition. And we talked about that for a while. Um, when Yanni told that story, I think I brought up the fact that when someone asks, well, would you at least coming from a non hunter's perspective, the idea of eating roadkill, just the word roadkill just kind of like sets off an alarm and you're like, ah, disgusting, horrible. Why? Um, but then when you actually stop and think about it for a second, it's like, well, why not is the, I guess is the better question. Um, uh, but I haven't, uh, I have not yet. No. Okay. Se well, seems like it'd be harder for me to do than, than crapping in the woods though. I don't know, Phil, you just gotta, <laughs> you're just not looking for it right now. You weren't looking for the crap in the woods. You you're not looking for roadkill. So your next thing you got to do in service to the podcast to bring us the content that everybody loves so much is, is grab us a wild, it doesn't matter what the roadkill is. Um, Spencer, do you have like a favorite roadkill treat that you can kind of, you know, titillate Phil's palate with? The, the only roadkill I've eaten uh, would be pheasant. I've had a handful of pheasants that I've hit that flushed up out of the ditch while I was driving in the fall, uh, crushed them, they were dead, and, and took those home and eat them. But uh, anything, any venison or game bird, can't go wrong, I don't think. Okay. Well, Phil, you be the one to look at. When you see one, you text me. I'll come over and we'll help you out, all right? All That's right. A, okay? All Got right. it. <laughs> Moving on, moving. Are we good there? Good there, Pat. You have any insight there? Or you, we should move no, on. Nothing really to add, in that, No. <laughs> All right, good. Um, I, I was just, I was just thinking though. I, I have to say before I forget that 
one of the most pleasant surprises in, in podcasts I listened to was the way you you have developed Phil into the celebrity. He's just a, a guy that I enjoy it. I'm sure when Phil took his job, he wasn't looking forward to looking down the road and thinking that he's going to be one day sharing all these varied stories that you've been pulling out of him. But yeah, it, well, it's, it's fun. As a fellow journalist, uh, I felt there was a story that needed to be told, Pat. I felt somebody had to tell this you know, mysterious, mercurial young man's story. Uh, and everybody thought, most people thought when he first came on, he was like a 45-year-old man. Um, who knew that his he had the tastes of a 45-year-old man, yet uh, was much younger and more handsome in person. So, um, we'll, we'll, we're peeling back those layers of the onion, and we're going to keep doing it. Okay, Phil, you good? Just say good. Good. Uh, thank you, Pat. Those were kind words. You <laughs> bet. <laughs> he never thought anybody would be drawing his face. It was not in the job description. That's for sure. It's one of the great joys of my life. Um, all right. Well, we got to get to the reason why I wanted to have both you guys on Spencer and Pat is because we've been saying this a lot more recently, but I am committed to, to sending more of you listeners over to TheMeatEater.com only because I read almost everything that goes up there. And um, it's some of the best parts of my day reading some of this content. So I, I am committed to making sure that you lazy bastards out there listening are taking up more of your free time and spending with us here at Meat Eater. So that's that's my mission. And I need you guys to help me convince them, you know, convince these people listening, these holdouts that aren't doing it every single day, to go and check it out. So I think we have two really great pieces that, that you guys wrote um, that'll that'll help with that mission so i'll let you lead off spencer only with the fact that uh, you wrote about your home territory the story of three toes the killer wolf the most the west most of the stories notorious livestock killer but within the article you started listing off some of the names of the legendary badasses that kind of came from that era and that <clears throat> part of the world you want to kind of give a rundown of, of some of those folks and why that they all kind of coalesced in that place? Yeah. Um, in the late 1800s, the Black Hills of South Dakota, specifically like Deadwood, had a gold rush. And at that time, South Dakota wasn't yet a state. And it was about the furthest, I think, east you could probably go without having a state. And so it was lawless country. And there was this attraction of gold that brought in all of these like really classic Old West characters. You had Wild Bill Hickok, Calamity Jane, Colorado Charlie Utter, Crooked Nose Jack McCall, who is the person that killed Wild Bill Hickok. Um, you just had like this real collection of characters. If you've ever watched the HBO series Deadwood, those are the kinds of people um, that you're dealing with around that era. But the most savage outlaw of them all didn't show up until 30 years later. And that is who we're going to talk about, Three Toes of the Wolf. Yeah, did you did you uh, mention Potato Creek Johnny? Did Potato you get him Creek in there? Johnny. Don't want to miss. Don't want to miss him. A, he was a great one. Uh, and if you ever do go to Deadwood, South Dakota, there's the Mount Moriah Cemetery, where a ton of these Old West characters with these really colorful names are buried. Uh, it's like one of my most favorite places in the world. It's a really cool place uh, to look back on that history and and know that you're so close to all those types of people. Yeah, I went there one time and got uh, blackout drunk at a casino and lost a <laughs> bunch of money. I missed the cemetery part, though, but I enjoyed the town. Nice steak. Uh, yep. Please continue. So Three Toes, uh, he kind of arrived on the scene in 1912, 
And he was known in the area because of his infamous paw print that only had three toes rather than four. And the story goes that he lost that fourth toe a year or so prior in a rancher's trap. Now, three toes was the last remaining gray wolf in the tri-state area of northwestern South Dakota, southwestern North Dakota, and southeastern Montana. Uh, And he really caused havoc for about a decade there. Now, there was a lot of credit given to Three Toes for being this bloodthirsty killer. Um, He would take out entire corrals of sheep. He killed cattle. He killed horses. He killed pigs. By the end of his reign, like his 13-year run of terrorizing the area, he had supposedly cost $50,000 in livestock damages, which today, accounting for inflation, is about $650,000 in damage. Now, Three Toes had this really evasive history. Everyone in the area tried to kill the wolf because he caused so much financial damage. Uh, There were stories of people pursuing him for 140 miles before they lost him, uh, 200 miles before they lost him. There were stories of mid-pursuit chasing Three Toes. He would take a break in a corral. He slaughtered 15 sheep and they kept going. Uh, The legend grew to the point where he had once hid in or near a horse carcass so that the people would pass by him and keep going. He was so intelligent that if the chase was getting close, he would intentionally scatter livestock so that they would obliterate his trail so then he could leave the area and they wouldn't be able to follow his tracks. So uh, Three Toes had wit and he also had athleticism. He had supposedly jumped down like 30-foot banks uh, to get away from hounds. He had cleared 12-foot clearing or uh, 12 foot banks to get away from hounds um so it was the wit and the athleticism it got so bad where the state put a bounty on him uh five hundred dollars which today kind of inflation is like thirteen thousand dollars um and as all these cowboys failed to catch him finally the usda called in their greatest wolf hunter in the country and this was clyde briggs he came up from new mexico and he had a reputation for catching the uncatchable predators After about three weeks of interviewing cowboys, scouting out the area, he finally settled in on a ranch and he set this like really exhaustive trap line and he ended up catching three toes. I think it was on July 23rd, um, 1925. I believe that was the date. By that time, three toes was well past his prime. Supposedly he had been, you know, at least 13, 14, 15 years old. Now, wolves in captivity, like their max range is 17 or 18. So this wolf was was way, way up there. Clyde Briggs decided he would spare three toes temporarily, and he hogtied him, put him in his car, and he was going to drive him to the town of Buffalo, which was only about 10 miles away or so. But on the way there, uh, three toes actually died. Despite the wolf being six feet long, he was only 74 pounds. And this uh, sheep herder slash writer in the area who a lot of these stories kind of come from, he had written about the wolf and, and this is what he said about it. Seth, call it a broken heart or what you will. Something of this sort is what killed the old wolf. He was resting easily when found. His wounds were superficial, but there was something in his grand old spirit that could not brook capture and nature more merciful than he had ever been granted him his release. Wow. So that is the story of three toes. It's like a single tear situation. I feel like, you know, I'm like an animal rights activist, right? And I'm like, oh, I got three toes. Um, yeah. that's, it's really a cool story. 
And there's a lot of good, what's the good literature people can read around it? Because there's a lot of good, um, you mentioned sheep. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of other things people can mm-hmm. to step in and read. If, if you go to the meatedeater.com, there's a lot of links in that article that'll take you to other places that you'll be able to read about Three Toes. Um, there's a lot written about him by South Dakota Magazine, which is a great job of covering these old stories. And then there's actually a statue dedicated to Three Toes at Buffalo, South Dakota, where there's this whole long, uh, basically life history of three toes and, and all the places that he made his kills and all the damage he caused. And they're talking about that ending. Well, there you go. Um, I imagine at any rate, you know, if you're not going to the media or you're missing out on this stuff. You had another story that you told on the, the live stream the other night, Spencer, that you can also find on our website uh, about growing morel mushrooms or the first guy to ever figure this out. Yeah, um, there was in 1983, I think it was, a student at San Francisco State University who had done the unthinkable. He successfully harvested lab-grown morale mushrooms. Now, this is a reputation that morale mushrooms have. You can't grow them um, in a lab. You can't farm them. And that's what makes them so damn valuable Uh is that you have to go out in nature and get these things, and it really makes him an enigma. Anyway, this grad student, he had cracked the case, and he figured out how to grow them. But three months before his patent was granted, he was murdered in the middle of a night at a city park in San Francisco. Um, So this grad student, he left behind like a super lucrative contract with Domino's Pizza, his patent is public knowledge. Anybody can go see it and try to replicate it. But like most patterns or patents that are uh, have some secret formula, he obviously left some things out. And so this man who was had the only knowledge in the whole world of how to grow these ungrowable mushrooms was then murdered. Uh, and nobody has been able to crack the case since. Uh, and, you know, to the long legend of South Dakota badasses is, is Spencer and his wonderful voice. As he tells you stories of shit you'd never heard before. The baritone badass. Crooked Nose Jake. What was it? <laughs> Crooked Nose Jack McCall. Potato Creek Johnny. Potato Creek Johnny. The badass baritone. Spencer Nero. Well, thanks for that. And please continue unearthing these little tidbits and delivering us to them every week on the website. We very much enjoy it. Um, and a lot of this stuff is part of this series called Barroom Banter. Um, and the whole idea of the series of barroom banter is to make you sound maybe not book smart, but you'll sound really educated and interesting uh, from a bar stool. So that's the kind of information you're going to find within this series. And that's most of my knowledge. I find that I don't really know anything. I've memorized a lot of things. Um, I've written things down on my hand to read during the podcast. I don't really know shit beyond that. So um, <laughs> that's why, the, that's why the media.com is good. I did get, you know, this reminds me of an email Spencer on a topic of growing meat. Um, a frequent emailer, Andrew Lennertz, wrote in and accused Phil and I of being involved in a conspiracy. Um, and I wasn't going to read this, but bringing that up, I think it's worth saying. He said, on January 10th, 2020, you wrote about the uprising of lab-grown meats, followed, followed up by talking about it on an episode released on January 27th, 2020. The following week, you fed your co-workers fake meat where you also talked about the future of lab-grown meat and its ability to take over the world. Citing some statistics, you mentioned within 10 years, it is believed that 70% of beef production could be flipped to the lab-grown variety. 
It was challenged by not only yourself, but also Mr. Ranella. Uh, I think that conversation was the tipping point. Fast forward to this week, and meat processing facilities are on the verge of shutting down. What better time for the lab-grown meat industry to step in and begin their ascent to the top? 20, 30, and 70% doesn't seem that far-fetched now, do they? I don't write this to blame you, but out of concern. It seems awful fishy to me that you bring this up mere months ago, and wham, here we are now. Either you're in on it, or someone is is in on it too. Could it be Phil? Mango? Barry K. Gilbert? I hope it's neither of these two have nothing to do with the other. But in this day and age, you can't be sure. The test tube meat makers will stop at nothing to get to stop gaseous cow farts from ruining our atmosphere. The other option in this whole scenario is that staying home for so long has really gotten to me. Only time will tell. <laughs> Take care, Andrew Lennertz. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, Phil, you have any uh, official comment? Uh, you're the PR head of the podcast. Okay, well, I just want to say that if anyone looks at my travel records or my stock portfolios and notice that I made a mysterious trip to Wuhan at the end of last year <laughs> or that I sold <laughs> off and bought a bunch of stocks, <laughs> just don't even worry about it. It's not a big deal. Um, but anyway, I just like to say that I'm doing well and I'm excited to retire at 29. Phil. God, Phil. All right. Well, I don't know. I really don't have any official comment other than this is possible. Uh it is very possible that uh, people will be eating a lot more lab-grown meat in the very short short future. So, Andrew, please keep on top of this conspiracy theory. I'd like to hear uh, where you can take it from here. Very entertaining. But, Pat, you, you have one more thing before we get to Jesse Griffiths, uh, our great friend at a restaurant tour down in Austin, Texas. We were talking about with him. We talked last week about what it was like to run a restaurant during this time. Um, his restaurant is is fully locally sourced down there in Austin, Texas. So he has unique relationships with ranchers and and everyone who brings the food in for his restaurant. So that's a great conversation coming up in just a moment. But before we get there, we're going to let you round it out, Pat, with a story of a different type of vasectomy. Um, Phil's looking to get the human vasectomy here pretty soon uh, at the at the ripe young age of twenty nine. But you have a piece on. Uh, deer vasectomies on the meateater.com. And I think, I think it came from Spencer. Did it come from a conversation where you and I were just, I am, I am fascinated by this, the, the sheer stupidity displayed uh, in this realm of, of, I don't even want to call it science in this realm of, of wildlife policy. Yeah. We were at your desk one day talking about uh, deer vasectomies and how we could cover it. And we landed on that pet, was the right man for the job and after he turned in the piece I, I think we were correct we were absolutely correct so pat you want to take us through kind of your your how you cracked this egg open yeah i was um well first of all ben and spencer i really was flattered when you guys sent me that that um assignment because i i really hadn't been following that i knew the people involved i've, I've um been aware of this um white buffalo for at least 15 years i guess but um, like anything I do, when I, I'll take everything that Spencer sends me, read that first, and just start figuring out who I know that would be good to comment on this. Um, also, I, I follow enough of the research to know what else has been done in the terms of um, animals and trying to use the human um, solutions to various animal problems. 
And, you know, they've, they've tried things like in the past, um, basically always sterilizing the females, finding, you know, they tranquilize the females, take out the ovaries, do the tubal ligations, these kind of things, put them back out there and see what happens and hope it controls the deer herd. But um, time in, time out, these things don't work. But this one was different because they targeted the males, take, you know, by take, trying to get them all vasectomies and they wanted to get like a 98% of these bucks, um, given the, the, as we call it, the big snip. And it was interesting, that just in the background reading, Ben, was, is one of these one of these issues that so often you see cities doing things like this and they do it without really um, knowing what, what the results might be. They don't call experts first. Well, in this case, the people involved in New York, you know, they had pretty good, um, pretty good background from different researchers at Cornell University and elsewhere showing that the odds of this working out were not good. That um, it's not, even though Staten Island, this is where we're talking about, I should have said that earlier. It's um, Staten Island in New York City. And it's about two miles by swimming across the river from, or across this um, um, inlet from New Jersey. And Basically, in the 1800s, they wiped out the deer herd in Staten Island. They all, whatever was there was gone. But then um, as all these urban areas start growing deer populations, well, some of them start trickling back into Staten Island in the 1990s or thereabouts, start swimming across. And I think it's by, the, by um, 2014, they had a population of about 800 deer, they estimated. And so they had a growing problem. So they started looking at how they're going to solve this problem. <clears throat> and they basically were told time and again that um, the only way you're going to control a problem deer herd like that is by lethal controls. Uh, you can do it by sharpshooting, you can do it by bow and arrow. If you do it by bow and arrow, using local citizens doesn't cost anything. Um, this, these are not new ideas. These are ideas they've been kicking around, trying you know, and doing for I know back in the 1980s already, you know, when they started having a lot of urban deer problems. So all the different scenarios, Ben, were there. You know, they, they yeah. knew what they're facing, and yet they go ahead and do it anyway. They go ahead and start spending money to get these deer, get, get these bucks, um, you know, snipped. And as I reported, you know, so far they've, they've done 1,719 vasectomies. And... That the population has come down a little bit, apparently, but you know, there's still deer swimming in from Staten Island. And I think one of the more interesting things that came up when I was reading on this and interviewing people was um, Cornell University up in upstate New York had tried something similar, but with the females. And what they found when they when they really cut off, um, made it so these these does couldn't get pregnant. They um, I think it was a tubal ligations they did. Well, the, the does are still cycling. They're still coming in the estrus, but they, but they can't get pregnant anymore. Well, what started happening was they can't get pregnant, but they sure can draw in horny bucks. And for like, because every time they recycle, go into estrus in 28 days, you know, they, deer can smell that odor, that, 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 that those pheromones from a great distance. So they, they found that the, the buck population at Cornell University jumped 
over 800% in the next couple of years when all these bucks started coming and flooding in there and having this nonstop sex action, basically. Can you imagine that? That sounds like the worst dance club ever, man. Like the, <laughs> the worst nightclub I've ever been to. Oh, and and they, they were able to show, too, that these, this is, um you know, we laugh, Buck, because we think, hey, if, that, if I were a buck, I'd like that, but um, in, in the wildlife world, those things don't always, you know, they're stressful. These, these does lost almost all their, um, the, the fat in their bone marrow. The bucks were stressed. And the, the researchers are saying that if this were happening with the herd, like in the north woods of New York, the north woods of the Great Lake states, those deer would not survive the winter. They'd, they'd be dead. You know, losing that, that kind of stress, that kind of um, fat loss. But yet, New York City started spending money on this, and as they were doing these vasectomies, right now the, the average cost of each vasectomy in New York City and Staten Island is at, um, I think it's $2,835. And it just, I guess I look at this stuff, Ben, I think you talk about a first world problem. I mean, what, <laughs> where else in the world would people do this kind of thing? And I, I love over the years, last couple of years, how you've been bringing out these different options people take with, with um, vegetarianism or the vegans and stuff. And I go back to um, my travels when I was in the Navy back in the 70s. And I still remember walking down the streets in Naples, Italy, and seeing rabbits hanging in meat markets. And they kept the head on. There's a skinned out body, but they kept the head on. And I had a someone with me that could speak a little Italian. So I asked, the, asked the, the, the shop owner why they kept the head on the rabbit like that. And he explained that, well, that way it shows the customers that these are not cats. <laughs> and you start thinking about that. And I have a brother who has spent all of his adult life as a business, businessman in China. He knows all about these, um, these what do they call them, wet gardens or what do they call these, these places with these wet these markets. Wild, yeah, wet, mar- wet, wet, wet gardens are a whole different thing. Wet markets. Thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> get, get my wet things confused here. Yeah, don't um, get just tread carefully there. Tread carefully. Yeah, I'm sorry. Um, but my brother's comment. This is and this goes back. This is a, again not a novel thought, but back in the 1980s when Tom was coming home and um, on on vacation and whatever, he would talk about. The real world of China, the real world of Taiwan, and he he went he went into that part of his life as a as a vegetarian, and within a year of working over in China, he thought that the vegetarian lifestyle was the most bourgeois thing he could think of to do. It's just it's totally a, a, a choice matter where only people who have wealth have those kind of choices, and he he quit he quit the vegetarian lifestyle because he said you know most people in the world. Do not have that choice. Yeah. And I look at New York City in this case, and I think the only reason this is taking place is because these people have money, and they can't confront uh, um, basically an attitude they created. That and Carl Malcolm did a great concluding concluding thought. Carl was the first guy I talked to in this article, but Carl, as we all probably know, is a frequent guest on the Meat Eater podcast, and he's been a number of my articles. He's a uh, he's got a doctorate in wildlife management. But, you know, he got pointed out that, you know, white-tailed deer grew up, <laughs> they evolved as a prey species. They've always been hunted. They've always had short lives. 
And so why not we want to turn them into a zoo animal by, by doing this contraceptives on them? So I, um, I'm not sure that's a great summary of my article, but um, if you have any questions, I can probably flesh out parts I left out. Well, I think it's just interesting. It's one of those topics, like many of the ones we try to address here, are, that have so many like different parallel conversations or offshoots that takes you into like, different realms of thinking. And I like the last time I try not to do this too often, but the last time I uh, interviewed a hardened animal rights activist who I'm sure would be in favor of this over, you know, what they would say is the senseless killing of, of deer. They would much rather see these vasectomies. In fact, I, I think I talked to him about that. He was also at the same time talking to me about bodily autonomy. You know, this, this idea that, mm. that these animals deserved bodily autonomy, that we were inflicting upon them not only suffering, but we were making choices for them as to how they lived and died. And that just shows, you know, I'm sure this this scenario and these deer vasectomies are born in some way out of that idea that there has to be another way to adjust the natural order of things to fit our own psyche in 2020 or 2019 or whenever this started in 2016. So it's it's as it as it's is borne out by your piece and by looking at the science and just looking at the results. I know that you have an incredulous Mayor Bill de Blasio in your piece where he just refuses to admit that this ain't working and that he's spending mm-hmm. and spending money and he's spending time trying to save horses from pulling carriages for uh, for tourists. But like, you know, there's this this idea that if we continue down this this road that eventually we'll be able to through technology or through advancement kind of control these types of of natural cohabitation issues and you know for those of us who kind of have an eye on the natural world and and are looking around with a critical eye moreover this just seems like bullshit um Mm -hmm. and it's nice to you know it's it's that's why it interests me and why spencer and i originally talked about it because i just think it you know it's born of the idea that these animals have rights and there's other ways that we can address you know what are our predator prey issues um to any biologist or any any wildlife manager. So it's, it's just a, it's a pretty deep, like the, the, your piece does a great job of just kind of presenting the story as it is. Um, but there's, you know, you could write a series of articles on what this really means. Um, yeah. and how, how a practice like this comes, comes about how it's allowed to surface in the way that it's surfaced. Um, you know, and kind of the type of politician that supports it is a little bit, it's, it's, it's obvious, but there's some, some nuance to it that I really enjoyed. So thanks for that. Yeah. I think you know one one thing I I um I mentioned it just in a in a in a phrase passing through the article about um you know this was this this was being when this article was being worked on was just when the COVID nineteen was blowing up in New York City and you, you can't help but wonder when this when we get through COVID nineteen if in the future when this kind of project comes up that people just stop and say is this really how we want to spend our money is this really as a society the best approach to these kind of things you know we have other things we got to be working on here but you know who knows i i i, I couldn't help but reflect on that a lot they're yeah. doing spent all this all this millions all this time and here we didn't have we're seeing now how few things we're really ready for you think well we found time for this though <laughs> so yeah yeah you talk about that luxury and that you know those modern 
uh, about the modern abilities we have to kind of go down these luxurious roads, whether it be this or something else. And those things are kind of those ideas are kind of shrinking now because we know what. Yeah. Well, we have to be prepared for something like a pandemic, and we can't really, um, you know, be frivolous with anything because there there's this idea that there's a crisis around every corner nowadays. Um, yeah, and so well, it, you look you look too, Ben. The you know, like I um. I think we've all seen articles in the last few days, last week or so, about how many people are um, looking at hunting now, you know, looking at different ways to get meat because, you know, they've been hit with um, financial losses. They don't have jobs. They're trying to find other ways to get meat into the house. And I guess I'm thinking while I'm reading those articles, you don't hear anyone saying, man, this is a good time to take up vegetarianism. It's a good time to switch to vegans because... No, I think we, in times of crisis, I think people tend to go back into the real world and what are real real solutions here. So, yeah. Now I'm, I'm I was uh, getting drunk last night and and working on a piece that addresses some of that. If I could find, I had a, a nice title worked up, but it included like uh, zombies and more hunters and gun buying and uh, wildlife management during the apocalypse. So if you're looking looking at for that. Uh, tornado of a piece that i'm working on right now for for the website but yeah you're right man this 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 uh to your vasectomy thing that we've been thinking about well before COVID 19 kind of slides in a strangely into you know the current the current yeah. way of thinking and people are thinking well what's you know what's an efficient use of our time how can we be self-sufficient um they're not thinking about deer vasectomies that's for sure unless you know spencer comes out with some story about like four toes <laughs> the the dough that can couldn't be couldn't be caught and her ovaries were made of iron you got anything like that no but but i like how on this podcast we've covered the two extreme ends of uh like wildlife management in three toes case you had cowboys killing the very last gray wolf on the great plains and then in the deer vasectomies thing you've got uh, big city politicians trying to save whitetails when there's more deer on the planet than there's ever been at any point in, in the history of the earth. So it's uh, Good point. they're funny, contrasting scenarios with a lot of anthropomorphizing going on in both cases. And then we have Phil, a lone engineer in Bozeman, looking on the streets for a squirrel or some shit to eat for dinner. <laughs> Yes, please. I'll be wearing the bright orange vest and a helmet with flashing lights. Just please steer clear. Thank you. I'll think of some sort of contest where you can draw Phil or I don't know, sing a song about Phil. Anything, anything artistic. You're, really, you're, you're just gonna drain this well dry, and by well, I mean Phil content. People are gonna people are gonna be yeah. sick of me because you keep... I said that. I've admitted it. I've I've admitted it, Phil. That I'm addicted to it. I would snort it off a table. I I just it's such an addicting. I love contests. I love contests about you. Um, I just I'm 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 open about these things. So people just you just have to deal with it, you know, or get you know you could get another job, but it wouldn't be as fun as this. It wouldn't be as fun as this. <laughs> That's true. Well, if there's any consolation, Phil, I, I've been in um, I've covered events over the years, like table discussions, panel discussions, and it seems like when it's a group of hunters and trappers and anglers, and there's one person there who's an anti-hunter or a non-hunter, they almost always start turning that person for their perspective. And so, in many ways, you're serving the same function in, in a much larger, larger audience now. So. 
Yeah, that's that, that's true. We we talked about this before, Pat, but we've had people write in saying they don't want me to hunt so that I keep my my fresh virgin perspective. Right, right. Yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, <laughs> don't yeah, don't ruin sweet Phil with your murder and the deer and such. Yeah. All right. Right, all right, Phil. Well, we'll look forward to next week's report on, and maybe even an article for TheMediator.com about your uh, your roadkill journey, uh, start to finish, narrative, about 3,000 words. That's what I'm looking for. So that's your Got assignment. Um, thank you, Patrick. Thanks, Spencer. Um, as I said, two of the best to do it on TheMediator.com, so go there and check it out. If not, uh, I don't like you, so stick with it. And now, uh, like I said earlier, a great conversation with a great – Jesse Griffiths, you heard him on this podcast before. You've heard him on the Mediator podcast. He, I think he's going to be in an episode of Mediator TV coming up. Um, it's a great as as we look at perspectives during this time. Jesse has one of the most unique pieces of that puzzle uh, as a restaurateur who already, you know, the ethos of Die Dewey, his restaurant in Austin, was already locally sourced. Everything came from a garden or a ranch or a farmer within his region. And so he has uh, kind of a doubly unique look at what's going on right now. And also we're going to argue about peas. So enjoy Jesse Griffiths. After three years of work, our follow-up to the meat eater fishing game cookbook is here. It's the meat eater outdoor cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill smoker, campfire and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside. From grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry. With pit stops along the way for lessons about ice age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. Jesse Griffiths, what's up, man? Hey, uh, no, nothing new. This <laughs> 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 last time we talked, everything's pretty steady down here. Well, that's good. Uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because your report from down there was, was pretty great. But before we get to all that, you're, you're in the restaurant, Die Dewey, right now? You're in your, in your place? Yeah, yeah. I've, uh, I've been here for about five weeks uh, for the most part, kind of uh, hunkered down here at the restaurant. We're, uh, we're open. We're, we're converted mostly into a grocery store, doing all takeout. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's been, been quite the pivot. So uh, I've been here, I've been here a bunch. Yeah. Uh, you're not sleeping there, are you? No. no. Okay. Not yet. All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I bet you did. So tell people, I, like, we'll, we'll give, folks a minute here if you want to return to our earlier podcast and, and listen we'll let you go back and look into the thc catalog and find our earlier podcast with jesse and we're back thanks for listening to that um so you now you know a little bit more about jesse and what he does but the reason i wanted to chat with you uh among the trade and a few turkey stories here in a minute was just to kind of get as a as a restaurant tour and somebody who's who's kind of created a 
specific uh, niche down there in Austin, like what it's like to, to run a restaurant right now and, and specifically your situation. Yeah. I mean, I think I mean, we have to preface it too by how ongoing the situation is. And at no point do I want to profess to know what I'm talking about or the mild successes that we've had um, may or may not carry. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's definitely an interesting time. Uh, we, we had two restaurants here in Austin. Um, one being a, a butcher shop and full service restaurant that was open for lunch and dinner in a little taqueria that was open downtown in a food hall. Food hall was the first to close down just because it was a really large space and could accommodate a lot of people. So that, that got shut down pretty quick, um, in, uh, early March. And then, uh, we, we are able to carry on here because we are, we have a, we have a pretty strong grocery component already being a. Uh, a, a small butcher shop of, and we carried some dry goods and other things like that. And then uh, for some reason, when, when we designed this restaurant, I, I, uh, I insisted on having a takeout window put at the end of the bar, which for the last almost six years made no sense to me at all um, in retrospect. And then one day it like a shining beacon. I was like, Oh, now that makes sense. Um, and now we can hand uh bags of uh, food out this takeout window for a contact free uh, transaction, which is, uh, yeah. which is part of the vernacular these days, which is a really strange thing. I, I feel like I some smell. people have handed me some liquor out of that window before <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah, a beer probably. I mean, a yeah, beer. probably a beer. Yeah. yeah. Um, it didn't get a lot of traffic. That thing gets used now. Um, and I'm glad we have it. Uh, yeah. But we sell it's, it's, it's strange how our, our, our fortunes change. And I, I'm, I sell, I sell butter out of a window and, uh, cause butter is, butter is a, a, a commodity these days. And along with the, something we never thought of, which was yeast, uh, we sell yeast for making bread and, uh, we just put it on the, on the, uh, online menu. People are, uh, it's insane uh, how much yeast do we sell? <laughs> uh, the little things that, uh, uh, if you had, uh, time traveled, a couple months back and we're like, yeah, man, uh, you know, two months from now, you're going to sell yeast out of a window. And I'm like, yeah, gotcha. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, overall uh, it, we've had no choice, but to adapt. Um, We've had um, moderate success, which I think in, in context of small business in general uh, can sometimes just mean survival. So uh, we're surviving. Uh, We had, to lay off a vast majority of our employees, upwards of 40 people. Uh, but we were uh, able to hire back five people yesterday. So it was a monumental wow. day for us, like a, wow. you know, a, a celebration. And uh, we brought five more people back. So I think we have a total of 16 people working now. Uh, wow. And we're working hard on bringing the rest of them back as soon as we can. Has that been, you know, going through that been, I mean, I know what you put into your your restaurants and i know you what you put into your food and we'll cover some of that in a minute but like i'm sure that was emotional for you going through that it was terrible um laying off people that have worked their asses off for you for almost six years or more um heartbreaking i mean you can't really put it into words um but on the on the flip side of that i will say that making that phone call yesterday and saying you're coming back to work was was a nice feeling you know it's joyous so. yeah 
not well we won't linger too long on this on the the crappy times but i mean what are those what are those folks that got laid off are they do they go straight to the unemployment have they have they been okay have have they been struggling or or, are there any particular stories you'd want to tell I mean, it's it's an obvious struggle. They they get to receive a pay cut. I mean, there is federal help that uh, came down the pipeline really quick. Um, I'm not going to say it's the most efficient thing, but in the circumstances, I think with the number of people that were laid off, that um, we have to give some credit. I mean, it's just it's unprecedented across the board. So, uh, yeah, they are they are suffering. Uh, they don't have they've lost a lot of their income, but there's unemployment and some and some additional money available to them on a weekly basis. Um, and then these new loans that are going out <laughs> supposedly to small businesses. Um, we were fortunate enough to, uh, to receive one of those. And so that's been formative in us rehiring people. But, you know, I think that, you know, I, there's a lot of kindness happening out there. I think that people are, are being very forgiving. I think that coupled with that you're not really, are no, at least personally, not out spending a lot of money right now. Um, it's a little easier to save money, so I think that that's going to at least mitigate uh, some of the financial losses that many people are seeing right now. But um, uh, by no means do I want to diminish that what what they're going through. It's our top priority to bring our people back. So yeah, yeah, that's a that's that's unbelievably tough. And like I said, we've we've had a lot of people on our show since we started. We did a daily podcast for a while and then back to our weeklies here the last couple of weeks. And um, it's hard to find. I haven't found any situation after hearing a little bit from you via text that seemed as real and as, as just damaging as, as what you're going through on a daily basis, you know, just from just from the economical standpoint, obviously health being what it is. But um, it's it's good to see you guys are standing up and still doing it. We should just cover, you know, what died Dewey – you know, was um, before all this uh, still that to some extent now, but what what maybe set it up to be um, a little bit more successful than other places? Given that, you know, like you said, it's not a time to push that in anybody's face or gloat about it. It's just a certainly, reality. Certainly, yeah. I mean, and tomorrow might be a new day, but um, I mean, beyond beyond having the grocery aspect and the fact that we we had a butcher counter, now that was that was huge because there was a, a run on protein. Um, I think more so the kind of ethos that we've always stood by uh, have become really profound these days. Um, the connectivity uh, between uh, source and user uh, has has really been highlighted. Uh, you can't, you just can't get away from it right now. We're uh, we're we're noticing more just how quick it is uh, that we can get product in when supply chains start to break. So um, we've always bought our chickens from Jane. We've always bought our eggs from Chris and we've always bought, you know, vegetables from a a variety of people. And uh, when this started happening and everything was just kind of a confusing cluster, uh, we, we realized that, you know, making that phone call and getting that, that, that product in, that day or the next uh, was 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 way more profound because um, we first off we we didn't know when we were going to need things everything was very up in the air as far as how busy we were going to be um, and so 
the ability to make that call and have that person come and then cut that person a check immediately um, felt really good. It was a very basic transaction, and it felt um, it, it felt therapeutic or like it, like almost healing. Um, when this, this, I mean, everybody knows this seemed to have come on very quickly, and uh, we we had to go into a mode where we were just trying to use product up for a long time because our, our business dropped by maybe 60, 80% uh, within a matter of three or four days. And uh, so we were sitting on a lot of things and, it, and it, at the time it seemed like we were never going to bring anything else into the restaurant. So that first time where the chef and I were talking and she's like, we're out of chicken, we need chicken. And I, at that point, I, at first I was like, well, we can't spend any money. We can't have any chicken because we can't spend money. And I realized, well, we'll, we'll sell those chickens. I'm not a, I'm not a very uh, strong business person. I don't, <laughs> I, don't under, I don't understand transactions very well. Um, but uh, so that first day when we needed chicken and we called Jane and we're like, Jane, bring us chicken. And she's like, yes, no problem. I've got chicken. And she came in and, we, and the whole transaction happened and it was – it was great. I mean, there was something just so small that to see the money go in the other way where, you know, our neighborhood came, showed up, bought some food for us. We had a little bit of money. We took that money. We invested that in some chickens and then we sold those chickens. Uh, and then we gave that money to Jane, the chicken farm. Uh, and so that felt really good. Um, and, it, you know, out of all the, the heartache and suffering that this whole thing is, is bringing, I think that there's a lot of amazing lessons and grounding uh, interactions that are happening and refocusing uh, us on on important things. The same thing could be said for you know my my freezer at home. I mean, not to digress too much from restaurant situation, but you know, I think everybody is looking at that you know those back straps and ground or frozen fish or whatever in your freezer right now with a lot more. Uh, respect you know because it's like oh wow that's one meal two meal three meal four meal right there you know like you can you count it and it and it makes a big difference and every one of those meals that's in your freezer is a meal that you don't need to tap out of the supply for other people and i think that's that makes a big difference too yeah i mean that you're you know what you've been always been about and what die dewey was always about prior to this was kind of like it was proximity, right? It was, it was being able to touch and feel things. And, and the hypothesis always being that that makes better for a better meal. It makes for better food and makes things more sustainable. I mean, that's, that's being proven out here, not only in the, the the way your business could still run, but just kind of like what you were saying, the emotion of being able to buy, sell, have this, you know, the distribution be like you pick handing money to someone and them handing you chicken rather yeah. than it having to be uh, killed somewhere else by a proxy and then driven to you and all those, all the hands it has to touch before it gets to you. So that's the one thing in thinking about you and, and what you're going through that was most impactful to me because we know everybody can't hunt, you know, not everybody's gonna be able to go do what you and I been doing in the last couple of weeks and killing Turkey. So it's good to know that, you know, you have, there's like an example here for what can be achieved. Yeah. And I, I don't know if it's, it's the type of, uh, uh model that, that can be achieved across the board, but, um, right. it, you know, it, it, it is, it is working for us and, and it just, it seems like 
I'd hate for such an emergency to really illuminate uh, how important these connections are, but it's what happened. And, you know, we're also seeing a lot of, I mean, here in Texas, uh, we're seeing a lot of like midsize or or, or large businesses too uh, doing really good things. Uh, The grocery chain HEB has been exemplary in how they're handling this and treating employees. I mean, some people might disagree, but from, from what we're seeing, HEB, which is a, if you're not from Texas area, it's a big grocery store. Uh, they've they've uh, behaved in a way that um, you wouldn't believe was a corporate-based uh, model at all. They've, they've, they gave all their employees a, a raise and within like a week of this going down. Uh, they gave everybody $2 rent across the board. Um, they've uh, started putting a lot of local restaurants meals uh, in there in the stores so that you know people can buy them to go so they're supporting restaurants as well uh, you know instituting a lot of safety measures and curbside stuff like that so um, it's not always the small models that are uh, you know they're the most romantic you know when I can talk about buying chicken from Jane you know that and that serves us well but that's 90 chickens a week we can't feed the metropolitan area so it's good to see and give credit due also to some of the larger models that I, I think are out there and, and doing great things. Um, Cause it, it is, I mean, if you're in our industry right now, it is about getting food to people um, and supporting the people that make the food so that on the other end of this, that they're, they're viable. Yeah. It kind of amplifies every part of the process, right? I mean, you, you have to think about, it's not that you can just like fill out an order form and get the stuff. You have to think about every little uh, you know, link in the chain. And my, you know, my wife worked for HEB when we were, um, we were there. She was in catering for HEB when we were there. And I always thought that they were that chain in and of themselves was, they were fantastic people. Um, so I'm not surprised at that. I'm not surprised that that's where they would land. But, you know, I remember being in Die Dewey and just the first time I was ever in there was working on a, an article about your place and kind of how you came, came to be there and came to have that. I just remember also like going in there and there's, fresh in season vegetables and locally killed wild boar and pompano from the coast. And I, I just remember like making notes like vibrant and just something, something about, you know, the walk-in freezer at your place seemed like it was just overflowing with stuff. Um, and it always kind of like, it, it's apparent in the food, you know, not to just yeah. pour on compliments, but it's true. No, I, um, I appreciate it. And it's, we're, we're just kind of the enabler of a lot of it. I mean, we treat our food really simply, you know, this is not a place that you go and get this super crazy high end stuff. You know, a lot of it's, you know, salt and pepper on a grill, and, you know, simple salads, things like that. And that's, I mean, that's the way we try to keep it. Um, but yeah, ingredients and connections do make a difference. I've always said that now it's like, I mean, I think people, I think people can really see the difference now. And we've, we've learned a lot too, from what customers want. Like I said, yeast, bandanas <laughs> uh, merch uh, the, those bandanas we bought like a year ago for merch so like crazy right now um and yeast and flour and eggs and, and milk and and things that you know i'm I, i'm actually really happy to provide i, I kind of like being this like nice local uh, grocery store because it's, it's just keeping the money flowing for now and again we, not to get overconfident. We don't know what the future holds, but we have to keep a level of positivity about it, just, uh, you know, in, in humor and whatnot that, to keep us just uh, uh, above water and uh, 
doing our job, which is just getting food out. Has there been any, you know, customer interactions that were notable or just things that I know, I know what they're buying, but just like the feeling that, that, that people get, I know that I've had the weirdest quarantine feelings and kind of some of the existential stuff going to Costco or going to some of these places and just, you know, feeling off feeling like things are, are, you know, as different as they seem on TV. Um, do you have any examples of that there? Well, I'll give, I mean, an overarching thing. This is, it's, there's been an almost universal kindness. Um, I think I, I hate to describe it as a forced empathy, but when everybody in the, in the world kind of has to take a bite of this sandwich, um, it, it does force a little bit of empathy. And, um, I think, uh, you know, the restaurant industry has always been you know, what it is. I mean, people can be possibly a little hypercritical of, of things or speak out of, uh, out of their knowledge base about food. I'm just going to say that <laughs> talking to you, Yelp. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I feel like, cause it hit, it hit this industry so hard. Again, not to deprecate. I mean, we're not frontline workers. We're not in the ER. We're not. We're not LEO. We're not firefighters. Anything like that. Um, but it it was at least portrayed as hitting our industry pretty hard. And there's, I mean, the the customers of almost every one of them has been incredibly kind. Even if it's just the way you greet and talk to them and kind of maybe joke around or you know have try to have an interaction with them. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a broad based uh, approach. And, you know, I, I, you know, to see positives out of it, I'd say that just like, it's just brought a lot of good out of people. I told somebody the other day, you know, I've had a lot of people like call, you know, just these are random cold calls, you know, or emails and things like that. You, you have a lot of people trying to sell you something that you don't need and then at the same time, there's a lot of people that will give you what you do. need. Um, you know, like some of our, our, a lot of the producers, farmers, ranchers and stuff will just find like extra things, you know, in there. Like, oh, here's an extra brisket. Here's two dozen carrots or, you know, give this to your laid off staff. Or here's, you know, four cases of Rambler sparkling water for your staff. It's like, cool. Thank you. I mean, it's just, it's, it's been great, you know, in that context of just how kind uh, people can get in these days, you know, when we're, we're led to believe that everything is so divided and negative that, you know, when something bad happens, then we really do kind of, uh, for the most part, uh, band together somewhat. Yeah. I said, it's, it's a time for, we've been trying to do this here on the show as much as we can just like, get as many different perspectives as we can on this thing. Cause it is a, just such a slow moving tragedy that it doesn't have any like defining moments. Something bad didn't happen all at once. And we're left to react for months. We're just like reacting every day, every hour um, to it. And so I personally I try to like, do I just ignore the slow moving tragedy and try to tell hunting stories or do we address these things that, that we're all thinking, how do we address them? Cause it, everybody's going through such different, you know, being in Austin where you are and, and being in Bozeman where I am is so different. Um, you know, we haven't been, I was looking the other day, our County has zero deaths, uh, from COVID-19. So I mean, it feels 
so different here, um, you know, than it does there. So it's 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 just good to hear your perspective from it. Have you seen just the changes in in the town of Austin too? Like what the day to day workings over there? Yeah, I mean, of course. I, I feel like um, culturally, Austin has taken the lockdown pretty seriously for the most part. I mean, people were proactive about it. And also, I mean, it's just, it's hard to know what exactly to do in this situation. There's, there's a few opinions. Um, if you go on the internet, <laughs> you might, you might be able to explore some of those opinions wow. of what's going on right now and uh, whose fault it is. Um, but beyond that, I feel like as a community, Austin kind of uh, just locked themselves down. I mean, there's obvious exceptions. Um, you know, it's a very outdoorsy community. So people in the streets at night are full of people walking. Um, and uh, our governor uh, was one of the governors that uh, opened up uh, hunting and fishing as, uh, as essential activities. Um, and I have never seen my lake, and that is my lake, by the way, uh, so busy uh, before. It was a parade of kayaks up there this, this for crappie season. Um, you know, the rare uh, morning or evening I'd get off and go distance. Um, there is a, a lot of people up there. Um, you know, and you get out of the rural communities just outside of Austin, there's kind of a spectrum. It, it seems that uh, you'll see, you see less masks and less gloves, things like that. Um, and I don't know how that plays out. Um, you know, it's, it's, this is a new thing for everyone. And it's a, it's a real lesson in uh, altruism, I guess. Yeah, in a lot of ways, for sure. Well, I, like I said, it's just good to hear, you know, the, you know, kind of how elastic what you've built is and, and what it, what it's been able to do. And, and I'm sure it'll continue with, with its elasticity and hopefully we'll get some more reports from you that you can hire everybody back. And, um, you know, you can be, you know, it seems like maybe in, in the next couple of weeks or months, we can get back to some semblance of normal and you guys have less tables or, or whatever and, and get it back. You have any, any thoughts about kind of the, the future of all this? Well, it's, I think it's going to indelibly change everything. Like when we, let's say when we, this fabled, fabled coming back, you know, when it's, and, and I doubt it's going to be one day, you know, it's going to be, as, as uh, steep as the transition in was, I think the transition out is going to be a, a real uh, tapered slope. Um, so it's going to affect the way that business is done. I mean, I mean, consider the handshake alone. You know, like what, what happens to the handshake? You know, it's like, I mean, culturally, and then, and then going to a restaurant, sitting next to a table that's two feet away, um, a server hands you your food. I mean, these are things that are just would seem very foreign right now. So I think the transition back into that is going to, is that's the great unknown. And we're not even occupying our mind space with that right now. Like it's, we're just going to have to let that define itself when it happens. Um, I will say that, you know, I feel like takeout, like to go food and grocery will be a lasting component. Um, and I'm not sorry or sad about that. I, I, I kind of enjoy that. It just adds more to the spectrum of food products that we're able to offer. And if it services our community better, then so be it. Um, so I, I think it will adjust the model somewhat. Um, I explained it yesterday in that when, uh, do you remember New Coke? 
Oh yeah, baby. Okay, so so there was Coke, and then there was New Coke, and then there was Coca Cola Classic, and I always felt like, you know, Coca Cola Classic may or may not have been different from the Coke that existed prior to New Coke, but New Coke occupied I don't know how long it was, maybe it was a year of of our cultural collective consciousness, and then at the end of it, uh, Coke was, I think maybe a little different, but it was Coca Cola Classic, so. When, when you have these gaps in, in service, gaps in like cultural memory on the, on the other end of it, you get to come back and any of those changes that maybe you were thinking about making before all this happened, you're able to make on the, on the back end. And there's no like service blip or there's not, not, it's not incongruous with uh, what you were doing. So maybe we are more takeout, maybe we are more grocery and, um, you know, depending on people's financial situations, you know, we are not a cheap restaurant just based on what we what we offer. And so on the flip side of this, we're, we might have to reevaluate um, how we're, we're able to feed more people um, at, at prices that are going to be concurrent with their incomes or the situation. And, and that's something that, you know, we can't we can't force that on our producers to drop their prices. So that's going to that's going to force some creativity on our end. If, if the uh, like mid to high end restaurant uh, world takes a, a hit and it's more like mid range on the other end of this, because that's what people can afford. Uh, then we're going to have to, we're going to have to pivot to that. And um, I, I can't say that I'm, I'm fearful of that. It's going to be a challenge, but it's something that we're just going to have to do. Yeah. And we've, we've talked a lot about, over the last six or eight months, I've kind of gotten. I I know you've been to Rome Ranch some, and done some some good stuff there with those those guys. Love those guys down there. Um, we started to think about you know consumption as a larger piece of it, driven by you know the proximity to our food and what hunting has kind of shown me, and then you know having a garden has shown me, and and really restaurants like yours have shown me on a, like on the next step up. Do you have any thoughts on a larger consumption level about the, how this might change us, how we think about eating, whether we do dive in once we can all, you know, the economy comes back and maybe we can afford it to more locally sourced food. Do you think more people will take up the, that sustainability model that hadn't thought about it before? I guess Absolutely. the question is, do you think this is going to teach us something? Yes. Yes. I mean, I think that, you know, we, you know, plant starts and mulch and uh, and and soil um, have probably hit record sales this spring. Um, you know, the the third branch of our business, NSTC, which is New School of Traditional Cookery, which is our hunting school where we literally take new hunters out and teach them how to hunt, fish, uh, butcher, cook, preserve, package, so forth. Um, it was put on hold. Obviously, we we suffered a huge loss in April and, and moving forward, we don't really have anything scheduled because it's just so unclear as to what, what's going to happen. But that said, I do anticipate a lot of interest in uh, people learning how to be more self-reliant because uh, you look at those lines at the grocery store and especially in a state like Texas, where the, the opportunities and resources do uh, exist in, and I mean, I think in a, in a pretty good uh, situation for for most people, um, that I think people are going to be more interested in hunting, fishing, gardening, uh, having a 
chicken coop, uh, self-reliance in general, just life skills. Um, and then you saw that how many people are just, they're at home and they're cooking. And there's this sourdough bread epidemic that's happening right now too. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. wow. but I mean, everybody has the time to bake and it's also going to, I think the beautiful thing about that is that it teaches people that were previously convinced that cooking is this chore and it takes too long to do right. I've now seen kind of the beauty in it and the, the, the little planning and dedication of time to it because it's absolutely worth it. I think, um, that, that moving forward, you're going to see a lot of people that are very interested in growing a carrot and then cooking that carrot or, um, you know, being able to maybe even ride your bike to a pond and catch some bluegills and have those with your carrots. Um, and then, because in the past, that might just be some kind of romantic notion. And now it's like, oh, you know, pretty cool. Yeah. Or the fact that it's, you know, springtime here in Austin and there's loquats and dewberries and mulberries and nopales popping everywhere. And people don't want to go to the store. And I'm like, hey, there's literally fruit on trees. It's right over there. Everywhere right <laughs> That's now. That's hilarious. I mean, you can yeah. have it. It's free. Not only is it free, but I mean, you don't even have to go in a door. You have to wear gloves. You know, it's, it's pretty cool. Um, you know, and before, like I said, it was just like this, oh, I mean, you know, I, I know it's out there. I don't think it, can you really eat that? Is it safe? I'm like, yeah, it's safe to eat a, a mulberry. You know, you're going to be fine. Um, unless you're on, it's on somebody else's land, you know, yeah. still Texas. Especially in Texas. Yeah. yeah. You'd be, you'd be yeah. dodging bullets. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but, um, no, no, I, I think that there's some, some great lessons that are going to come out about this and, uh, it's like. All those, all those activities are going to be done for less ironic reasons. That's a great, that's a great point because I think you know the foodie movement, quote unquote, or the the field disabled movement. It feels like the New York Times writes a different like hipster hunter article each year. It mm-hmm. seems like they just recycle that narrative. Like here's a guy you wouldn't think that would go kill something, yeah. um, and they just uh, and they just roll that out and roll that out and roll that out. And now it's, you know, like you said, it's less like it's not ironic anymore to think of how to source something, where it comes from, how to get your hands dirty, because it's that's more utilitarian than it is just the novelty of doing it, um, which is I think a lot of people were like, I can get my meat at the store, but it's way more rich um, in experience to go do that. But now it's like, well, those it's not just for the rich experience anymore. It's it's more practical to go and get it that way. Um, and it makes more sense because we now know how fragile our structure, um, our, you know, our, our food sourcing structure is and how quickly it can break down, you know, based on supply and demand. It's as simple as that principle is. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a point well made. And I, I imagine, um, a lot more people like you're the, would you call yourself the crappie master? Is oh, that the no. right? Oh Does, no, I'm terrible no. at catching crappie. <laughs> <laughs> I love them; they're my favorite. But I'm, I'm absolutely not the terrible. master. Not the master. I, I get lucky every once in a while. And I'll tell you what, man. If, are we ready to shift? Yeah, this <laughs> we, is that was my okay. That was my like. Eh, we're done okay. with that crap. Okay. There's nothing other. more annoying to me than that the guy that's like, "Are you like catch crappie?" And I'm like, "Yeah." 
And then he's like, oh, yeah, me and my granddad used to go out. We'd catch like 200 in an hour. Uh, and we were just on a bare hook any time of year. And I'm just like, you are lying. That is not, that is not my crappie experience. You know, like, there's, there's days where we'll get after them a little bit, but there's also days where we catch two. And, uh, I, I, uh, I, I'm, a, I mean, I'm obsessed with crappie. Um, yes. they're a, they're a big, uh, lo- I mean, locally we, we have, a, I mean, good populations of them around here and a lot of them live up in my lake. Uh, and, uh, uh, we get after them quite a bit. We go after uh, only in the spring, though. I don't have a boat, so it, it's a very seasonal thing for me too. It's a definitely February, March, maybe a little April um, situation on the crappie. But uh, uh, I'm, <laughs> man, they, they they give me fits. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get I after them it. some days, and then you know, you never know either. You just don't know. Oh, it's going to be great today. No, probably not. And then the guy next to you is like, oh, you should have been here yesterday. <laughs> oh. They but, should uh, have been here yesterday, guy. Yeah, yeah. Like, we, we did pretty good on them this year. Um, we we, we kind of took a chance and went earlier than we normally did. And I think that uh, I learned a lot more about their, their habits this year and just kind of this, you know, theory of, of the, the, the spawning in waves where the crappie don't spawn at one time i think it's like a two-month thing and it's just you you're playing the numbers they're up in the creek they're at they're down deep but those those glorious days where they're coming up into two feet of water and they're just smashing jigs um that's when those conditions are just perfect and so you kind of you just have to like suss those days out and uh and it can just change from day to day and and you know a light rain or moon or or wind and barometric pressure anything can just totally shift on you and uh and and turn that that slam dunk trip that you had planned into like a one crappie trip and you're like do i even keep one crappie <laughs> yeah you're just like holding yeah. it like this yeah you know? yeah holding like, it in your pocket your thumb. yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I wore cargo shorts that's nice yeah um are you what's your set are you you're not throwing minnows and bobbers are you uh at night so we'll there's two different ways we do it and uh, we'll go at night with lights which is possibly one of my favorite uh, just ways to fish it's just like you know me and usually one other person we use the long rods you know we're 10 10 11 foot rods uh and then uh little super sensitive stick bobbers uh and live minnows uh, under lights at night and that i mean when they're when they're going that is a lot of fun you catch some white bass like that too maybe catfish here and there and then the other way we do it is just during the day is you know just go out and get up in the in the feeder creeks or in brushy sloughs on the lake and uh fish jigs um typically a jig and bobber situation um for them while they're up shallow uh, and I, I tie my own jigs. It's another thing that I'm pretty obsessed with. I love tying jigs. Um, I actually sell them at the restaurant. You can, you can get <laughs> right it. out the window. Yeah, out the, window. Your, out the window. Get yeah. your yeast and your yeah. jig. Yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, yeah. A, a jig and bobber. But. I, I love it. Um, I you know I've I got into I can't even remember years ago. It was turkey season, and I was catching crappies in Lake of the Ozarks, and we were eating. We were finding morel mushrooms and i just oh. remember that's like it doesn't get any better than that like no. seasonally no nope, nope. yeah like morels that. crappie and turkey it's a confusing time of year because i mean you can throw hogs into the mix right now yeah um they're they're kind of on the move and so 
Yeah, me and uh, a buddy the other day were just like, what do we do right now? <laughs> it's, it's a tough one. It is tough. Uh, uh, but, you know, in Turkey, they'll, they'll, they'll captivate you pretty good, too. They're easy to get kind of wrapped up uh, around. Well, I know. Well, that's like, you got it. We had to cover crappie. Well, we, we can't leave crappie without getting your tips for cooking them up. Sure. Um, give us give us a couple of a hot tips for that. Yeah, I mean, crappie, I, I love them. Um, they are one of my favorite freshwater fish. A lot of people put them number one. Um, I And I'm a big fan of white bass, too. Some people just think white bass are terrible. I don't understand that. I think white bass are great. Uh, and we catch a lot of those together. I mean, there'll be a lot of days where we're 50-50 white bass and crappie. They're kind of lurking around the same areas um, in Texas. And uh, But crappie, you know, fried, uh, always. Uh, mm-hmm. Fried fish. Uh, there's a lot of different methods you can do. I think crappie are very good with just a, a very straightforward um, cornmeal. I like that, the mustard buttermilk trick where you uh, do just like 50-50 uh, mustard, yellow mustard and buttermilk if you don't have buttermilk just use milk whatever uh you just kind of thin that out and then just uh dress the fish in that um just enough to coat it and then roll that in fine cornmeal uh steve and i have discussed this at length too fine cornmeal because coarse cornmeal will burn uh you need fine cornmeal or a masa cornmeal mix if you have access to masa arena which is the dry super fine masa uh, and then roll it in that, fry it, fry it hot. Um, you know, might even cut a fillet in half, uh, more surface area for more crispy. Kind of depends on what you what you prefer. Uh, this year, I did a lot of uh, beer batter on crappie, which is definitely kind of a, a little bit harder to achieve and make it really, really good. There's a couple of tricks um, making a, a beer batter. You have to keep it super, super cold. So my beer batter would be 50-50 rice flour and flour and then a beer, whatever beer. It doesn't matter. Just, you know, mix it up with whatever you've got. Um, a little bit of baking powder gives it extra fluff. Um, put a little bit of honey in there, and that helps with uh, color and caramelization just to drop. And then you uh, dust the fish and a little bit of flour, and then you go into that beer batter. That beer batter has to be fairly thin, maybe a little thinner than you think. Um, and then immediately go into hot oil. And if your oil is not hot, you're, you're going to have a disaster because it's going to absorb that like a sponge. But if your oil is hot, and I mean probably 375, uh, 360 to 375, uh, goes into that hot oil, and it will immediately kind of start to puff and get crispy and you need to fry it until it gets nice and crispy and another trick it's kind of japanese tempera trick is to take a little bit of that batter and as that fish is frying you drizzle that batter on top of the frying fish and what that does is that adds more layers of crispy cooked beer batter um, onto the fish and uh, when you nail it it's it's phenomenal it's really good because, I mean, most people's complaints about beer batter is that it's too thick and doughy. And when you can get your beer batter to be 100% crisp from where it's touching the fish to the you know outer edges of it, that's when you really achieve like that perfect like fish and chip oh, style. So, yeah, there's nothing 
nothing better than like that moist, flaky flesh with just the right amount of crispiness on the outside, man. Um, there could be a debate around like once you got the perfectly fried crappie, really any type of fish, like what's the I grew up with cocktail sauce, man. Like that's the thing that I that I always go to. Um, a lot of people are spritzing lemons, and there's 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 a million things you can do. What's what's the what's the Jesse Griffiths go to? Uh, I'm a uh, I, I love condiments, so I mean anything. Cocktail sauce is uh, there's not any one that I'm gonna be like I can't believe you did that. I, I don't think. Uh, I was hoping to get. Yeah. I was hoping you, I was hoping you'd be like cocktail sauce. So oh, we're going to talk about. I think there's an ingredient that we're, we're going to cover yeah. here. In a um, cocktail sauce is great. I am I'm a fan of mayonnaise based sauces, and I think that you know you can throw together uh, any kind of like ersatz, um, sorry, tartar sauce, uh, pretty quickly, and and or a remoulade style sauce. And don't don't get you know don't overthink it. You know if you like those kind of things, just take some mayonnaise. Maybe throw some whole grain mustard in there, and then whatever pickle you've got laying around—I don't know if it's a pickled green tomato or a pickled green bean or a pickled quail egg, or or just a standard, you know, kosher dill—and just chop that up real fine, throw it in there. Maybe throw a little raw red onion in there. Any kind of herbs that you have: parsley, uh, tarragon, um, cilantro, anything like that. Uh, basil. Uh, are also you can throw in there and then citrus, things like that. Um, I think that, you know, I, I hate recipes. I, I think that people get hung up on it and it, and it, and it intimidates them to not want to uh, experiment with what you just got laying around. But a lot of these concepts, you can't go wrong. Fried fish with uh, delicious uh, sauce to dip in and, and you're all good. And so, I mean, yeah, I, I, I think I would lean towards the mayonnaise based sauce, but cocktail sauce, I would eat that all day long. Oh man, I'm, I'm all over it. I think we got to go. We got to talk about morels. Um, you know, if you just by the by, if you want to get all the information on what we how we think you should you can find them. Go to the themediator.com. We got a lot of articles there. But um, once you found them, the, I think the key input here from you is like, what's the what are some of the ways that you cook them up that you like? I I think there's some classic morel dishes that I'm sure you know of. But like, what are the things that are the staples in your mind? Yeah, and that's funny because I think if you were like to ask me what's the best uh, meal that I've had this year or cooked this year, and I would say it's a beer battered crappie with morels. Uh, um, and uh, oh, I'm sorry, I made a uh, uh, sorry that was inappropriate noise. We'll yeah, bleep yeah. that out. Well, we'll, that well out. we're about to s- we're we're about to like uh, make a little bit of this segue. So I I, I took morels and made a little just. Um, I guess you call it a, a, maybe a stew, and there was carrots and leeks uh, in there, a little bit of cream, and there was also a vegetable that we shan't name. Uh, it was the pea, the, the English pea was also in there too, because peas and morels are good buddies. Um, and uh, just uh, a little bit of cream, a little bit of wine, uh, and all of those cooked together, and then I served it with the with the crappie, beer battered crappie. Uh, it was it was phenomenal. Um, I think morels in general, I, we we have a very short season here on them, as uh, in my experience, and uh, it can be as short as maybe a week or two, because uh, the conditions, uh, as you know, Texas transitions from 
uh, spring to summer pretty quick, or from winter, which is also maybe <laughs> just late fall to early summer. It's uh, nebulous. You never yeah, really know. Uh, pretty pretty quick, and so uh, those 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 perfect conditions for morels. Uh, some 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 years are better. This year we found a few. Uh, they were all really big though, and got a few meals out of them. I I think if if you want like the perfect like morel forward experience, my favorite thing is just pasta morels uh, and parmesan. You know, like a combination of those three things. I'm not going to say you have to go out and make your own pasta. Absolutely, do not have to. Uh, I'd say you know you uh, clean your morels really well um, in a pan. Uh, with some butter and you can do a lot of that. And I, I like to cook them. They'll, they'll lose liquid and then they'll start to kind of, that liquid will cook out and they'll start to fry a little bit. You'll, you'll go from uh, sensing a bit of moisture in the pan until where they start to fry again. And I feel like that's when they kind of hit their peak of flavor. And at that point um, I will throw a few sage leaves in there. Uh, and then it's just time for pasta and then Parmesan or some other kind of you know, hard grating cheese. I think that's a really nice accent for morels. Uh, it could be pecorino, grana, Parmesan. Or we, we use cotija, which is a Mexican hard grating cheese. We use that quite a bit here. So uh, to keep a little more local, you know, like a, a local wheat, pasta, morels, uh, butter, and some cotija. I think I mean, that's just fantastic. Follow red wine. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, my feeling is morels just don't need much, you know, no. a little bit of butter, a little bit yeah. of saute or fry, and and they can go pretty much. Do you guys do you serve them at the restaurant there? Uh, on on good years, this year, no, our we we do work with a couple foragers, um, and we'll have a decent uh, morel season and sometimes a good chanterelle season as well. That's about all we'll see here besides puffballs, which are, uh, I mean, they're not they're they're fine. Uh, but uh, this is not a year for foragers bringing stuff in to us. So, and we, we really, we missed out on that. So, but last year we had a good amount of morels. And when we, when we have them, we typically serve them just with, with a plain pasta. It's one of the only times we really make pasta because I, I really feel like that's the highest and best use right there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For just a, just a vehicle for morel consumption. Yeah. And I just don't, I don't feel like there's any, as I as I think of things like there's anything seasonally like a seasonal flavor that that is like a morel tastes like that time of year like yeah every everything kind of has its moment right but man when the morels should be popping here in, in Montana soon yeah um, they go well with turkey too so. oh my gosh if you ever yeah a cast iron skillet in turkey camp full of morels and and just a straight up turkey breast just okay. cook that thing through oh boy. I'm going to be making noises. I'm going to be making noises. Um, all right. Well, we'll have, we got a turkey story to tell, and I want to talk about cooking up some turkeys as well. We, we've already mentioned the the legume that shall not be named, um, the the pea. Are you you're a proponent of peas? Uh, are they kind of a middling vegetable for you, or, or where where are you at with peas? I love them. Love them. I, I love them. I, and they're you know. There's a pea farm out in East Texas, and uh, HEB sells bags of frozen peas from that place. And that I love, you just take them right out, and they they cook in 30 seconds. You can just throw them into anything. Oh. Uh, 
there it is. Uh, yeah. What did you just go ahead and describe like what's what's the relationship between you and peas? Does it go back a long way? Do you feel a special connection to them? Because it can't be the flavor. You can't. It can't be that you like the flavor, is it? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's you know it's uh, vegetal green, uh, a springy flavor. It pairs well with uh, a lot of other things. You know, like I was saying, carrots uh, or else bacon, um, butter, cream, lemon. Uh, I think peas peas play nicely with a lot of other things. So, it's, so it is, it's for you. It is the flavor. It's just the yeah, and the cons- like when you bite into it, it just expels all the mushy pea inside. And you'll have to forgive me because it's been a long time since I had a pea. Um, I always tell the story that my wife. This happened the other day when we were going through recipes when quarantine came. I'm like, well, let's look at our old recipe books and see what we're gonna make. You know, some family recipes and things that we were looking at and i came across this shepherd's pie recipe that uh <laughs> that my my wife had from her mother i think um shepherd's pie my favorite thing and she wrote on the top of it he hates peas over the top of it <laughs> over the top. Yeah. and then i was like i'm marrying that girl mm. like she she knew and i just remember like taking these wonderful bites you get a little bacon in your Get a little bacon, a little venison, some mashed potatoes, and every once in a while that pea would would be in there, and you would bite down on that, and everything would just be destroyed. All so you're saying me. that that like I mean, there's all those good things like the the baconness of that dish, the venisonness of that dish was completely ruined by the peaness. Peaness, yeah. <laughs> the peaness is uh, uh, I have a child's mind, so that makes me giggle. But yes, the peaness is a, is an issue for me. Yeah. I, I like it, there's nothing about it. Like when I look at it now, I kind of like, I kind of like rear back. Just I got to a question. Look at it. Okay, so yeah. and we okay. we can move on. I think everyone and no, this is a topic. Land, that, it's just this is a topic. Uh, this is a topic that I get. I had I think that like the Legume Association of America sent me an email one time or something. <laughs> you got in trouble. <laughs> they were um, like, "Come on, man!" Cease and there's, desist. <laughs> yeah, there's a dude out there. Uh, I can't remember his name. Forgive me, but a listener that always writes in. He's a pea farmer and a big deer hunter, and he's always like, "You better come hunt deer on my pea farm," and um, he'll love penis as as. A, uh, yeah, it's uh, I I can't uh, say that's the first time I've uh, used that one. <laughs> I'm into it, but yeah, I mean, I think people generally are intrigued with my my hatred for this this vegetable, so it's okay. Well, okay, one question, and we'll move on. Like, what about a it, since it seems to be so texturally based for you? What about a puree? Like, if mm. if they were cooked and then in a, in a very expensive blender that was highly functional, and then pureed with some cream and made into like this very light. Um, just green, maybe there's some mint in there and some butter, uh, some lemon zest, and then serve that with a uh, like a beer battered uh, walleye mm. fillet. Uh, mm. Do you do you think that you know you could kind of get on the fence with that one? Or is I, that, is it just maybe Gilbert? close. I think it's it's the color too, because peas have a certain greenness. Well, if they're uh, overcooked, I mean, but you you can get a very verdant. Um, color if you just very lightly cook 
This could be like an Instagram live thing where I come when we reopen the world. I come to Daidu and you just have oh yeah a, a myriad of pea dishes <laughs> that yeah. are just oh. that I and I'm I'm forced to kind of choose my favorite. I think that would be. I try to think of myself as an open minded guy, but I've adopted the anti pea uh, stump here. That uh, you've, you've branded yourself. I branded That's myself anti pea. Yes. It's going to be hard for me to kind of back away from it well i think uh, i sent you a picture the other day kind of kicked this whole conversation off with just a yeah. picture of uh, some rice with a bunch of peas in it and all i said was thinking of you <laughs> i was like you bastard <laughs> that poor rice <laughs> that rice did nothing to yeah, you yeah 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 the rice that, that's uh suffering we just with i just turkey. had a yeah Ooh. Um, I, yeah, I just did a podcast with a vegan. We never, I should have, I should have asked him about the pea thing and see if we could get a good argument. Not only is he anti-meat, he's pro-pea and I'm anti-pea. So we got a lot of, a lot of things to figure out. But okay, well, I am very willing to let you, of all people, Jesse Griffiths, fix, fix me up some peas. I appreciate it. Uh, maybe next spring when we're back to normal, we can kill a turkey. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, and garnish it with some peas. I love it. Um, But, but speaking of, Turkeys, um, before I let you go, you killed a banded turkey. I did. To, to the jealousy of all the duck hunters out there who, yeah. who wish they could take part. What, well, what happened there? I mean, I don't know if they know this, but killing something with a band on it doesn't require any uh, extra talent on the hunter's part. <laughs> oh, that's controversial. Yeah. Controversial. Uh, well, especially with turkeys. I mean, I, uh, I didn't know that he was banded. Um, yeah, I was in a I was in a county uh, southeast of Austin. Not a very dense turkey population. In fact, I had never seen a turkey out there uh, until he came in uh, to those decoys. Um, uh, my friend who lives on the property, he's not a hunter, but he's he told me in the spring they will see gobblers start to move out there. And we we shoot uh, pigs out there, um, and uh, my daughter shot a deer out there because it's a it's a doe you can't shoot does there except for youth season um but uh we never seen any turkeys uh, i think a couple pictures on camera uh but he told me that he was starting to see uh, a gobbler out in the afternoon so went out there and uh set up and uh you know i i, I managed to do everything right and he he came in from a pretty long way off and came up to those decoys did everything and took me about an hour to get him in uh, and I am an awful. Uh, I'm a I'm a slightly better crappie fisherman than I am at calling turkeys. Um, and uh, but he, I guess, was intrigued by what these uh, hens were saying. Um, it must have sounded. I'm sure it's a foreign language. Um, but uh, he came in and I shot him, and I was very proud of that. And then I walked up and he had a leg band, and uh, so I. Uh, the next morning, I called uh, Parks and Wildlife and got a, a message saying basically that uh, everybody's furloughed and tough shit. <laughs> we can't help you. And uh, I was fortunate enough to uh, I, I talked to Colonel of Game Wardens, who's uh, a good guy to know. And uh, I, uh, I messaged him and I was like, hey, man, I shot a banded turkey. And he got all excited. Um, and uh, he gave me a biologist's number. And uh, called and talked to that biologist. Probably talked to him for about 30 minutes about uh, mostly uh, predation on turkeys in Texas, like what likes to eat them. 
and then I talked to the field biologist who had actually participated in the banding survey of, of these turkeys. And they were a minimum, they were, they were adults. They were a minimum of two years old, three years ago in February. Uh, so he estimated that the bird was five, probably six, uh, when I shot it, which is a big old bird. And, uh, I, uh, I've, I didn't measure the spurs or anything. I was, I was more weighing the breasts uh, than, than anything. I, I posted on Instagram. And, I know you posted it, and people were like, I want to well, see the spurs. the spurs. I'm like, ooh, yeah, I forgot about those. Uh, I did cut the uh, the, the beard off, and uh, it's, I think, nine or ten inches long. I, again, I, Plenty long. Yeah, it's, he, was a, he was a big, big, beautiful bird. Um, it's all I really care about. And, uh, for an old bird, I don't know, you know, what the research is out there on eating old turkeys, but he was delicious. Uh, we, I had some last night. I ate the tenderloins last night. Uh, and they were phenomenal, tender, beautiful, mild, perfect. Uh, again, another vote for turkey is possibly the best game meat out there. I I want to say yes. I I hesitate to like. Put it in, put it at the top, but boy, it's, I don't know. It's like, I think it of it seasonally anymore. Like it's not the same June, June isn't the same unless I have a, a pile of turkey legs and breasts and tenders and all the things in my freezer. Sadly enough, I, it's, it's August or April 21st right now. I haven't killed a turkey and that that's probably been a decade since that's happened. So it's starting to get. Get feeling a little feeling a little desperate right now. Yeah. Um but what like when you think about um there you go, you're in your office. Yeah. Uh, the, the front of, was gonna ring. <laughs> hey, we got almost got an hour before it did. Yeah. Um so you know, when you're when we're breaking down, we did this with Danielle Pruitt the other day and she uh, just t- took a turkey and kind of went through the parts and kind of how how to prepare it and what to look for. Um so, so folks can go back and listen to that. But in your case, is there, what's the go-to recipes? Um, just stuff that you just can't do without. Well, you know, I, I'll, and I'll say right off that I, I am not a plucker. Um, I, I skin turkeys out uh, because the, the high use items that I'm going to get off a turkey don't require skin. And so in the field, does it make any sense to go through that process? Plus I've, I've really learned that the faster, uh, that I get that, that meat cold, that it, it's just like, I, I appreciate the quality of it. Um, I like to, to process them pretty quickly and I'll go in and just skin out the breasts, um, and then skin out the legs, pop them out of the joint and then just have two legs, two breasts, um, and then grab the liver. Um, the breasts I will make into, uh, cutlets mostly, uh, which is what I had last night, just a very standard breaded cutlet, uh, like a flour, egg wash, then breadcrumb uh, cutlet, or milanesa, or scallopini, or schnitzel, or tonkatsu, or whatever you want to call it. Every culture's got their crispy fried meat, and I think that that's an excellent use uh, for turkey. You need to make sure that you remove all the uh, silver, the sinews. They are incredibly tough, even in the breast. Um or sausage. And people are always like, wait, you make sausage out of turkey breast? And it's, yeah, I'm not going to make just any sausage out of them. Uh, there's some more like esoteric, uh, lighter sausages uh, 
my favorite one is Boudin Blanc, and that confuses people a lot because they assume that to be a Cajun sausage. Boudin Blanc is actually a French uh, sausage. It's an Alsatian sausage, so it's got a lot of German influence on it as well as French. And so it's bound with breadcrumbs and cream, um, which you will find on Boudin across the world, is that it's bound with some sort of grain, uh, and be it rice or, or oats or or bread. And so this one is made with bread and cream uh, and then really light spicing, a little bit of uh, caraway, a little bit of white pepper and lemon parsley. Uh, and it's a very finely ground sausage. And it's, I mean, it, and it, it's a way to really enjoy turkey and it'll stretch it too, because you're adding in the bread cream. And so, you know, four pounds of turkey breast will yield seven pounds of sausage. Uh, and so it's a good way to take that like really nice turkey flavor and spread it out. And it's very easy sausage to cook as well because you, you poach them first and you can freeze them as a poach. And then all they need to do is mm-hmm. go to a pan or on the grill after that. And it's a, that's a fantastic sausage. Um, other things with the breast, uh, uh, fried, uh, you know, brine it, buttermilk it, uh, uh, throw it in flour. As long as you've got 11 herbs and spices in the uh, flour, it's going to taste amazing. Uh, and then deep fry that. And, you know, what? That's, that's, there's there's no, no shame at all. There's nothing. No, I, it's been a while since I've done that, in fact. I've, got, I've gone to, like, honey glazed, smoked honey glazed breast and all kinds of different things that I've done over the years. I've taken to – should, I should get your opinion on the uh, wild turkey cordon bleu. I've been criticized for that. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> People are like, well, that's that's too simple, or that's just throwing cheese and ham inside of, of a good piece of meat. I'm not sure why people have – there's been criticisms. Or maybe oh. I built that up in my head, but yeah, I love I, I don't the cordon bleu. People, people get funny about things. They're like, yeah, you put cheese and ham in there because cheese and ham are good. Fucking good. And like, turkey's good, and then and you add all those three things up. That's also good. And uh, no shame, no regrets. Uh, I, I would uh, dismiss those people as as abject purists, and they can go. That's and, right. I don't know what they're doing with their turkey, but I'm sure it's great. Uh, yeah, no, that's 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 been my that's been my go to. But I think frying this year, I may. Uh, I'm starting to get really hungry now. May yeah, may go and fry fry a bird. Have you ever made? Have you ever ground turkey and done like just just straight up ground? Yeah, I mean, make uh, things like meatballs. Uh, yeah. are really nice. You know, and again. It's when you're when you're doing things like this, you're not wasting. I mean, sometimes people will be like, "I can't believe you ground it," but it's like, no, you're the, the preparation you make from that ground meat should, you know, really elaborate on the flavor of the turkey. So I would like make a, a meatball that would be something very very light. You know, it would have like lemon in there, maybe mint. You can even grind things like arugula or something in there that was like like light springy things that are going to go with turkey really well. And then you don't necessarily have to put that in a tomato sauce. I mean, you could make you could take turkey sauce, I'm sorry, turkey stock, uh, which I'll get to in a second, and just thicken that with a little bit of roux, like a flour, uh, flour and butter roux, and just thicken that up and, and use that as your sauce for some meatballs or serve it over rice, things like that. Great. Um, you could take ground turkey and put it on a skewer with uh, you know grated onion and a little bit of allspice and grill that and get that nice smoky char on there. Serve that over rice with some yogurt. I mean, there's a million things, and uh, you know, I just encourage people to experiment, but and don't think that you know, don't don't 
think you're going to mess it up or, or listen to when people tell you not to put ham and cheese in it. It's just silly. What, yeah. It's America. It's America, man. America. Yeah, no, I've, I've, um, I very much look forward to. I got a commercial slicer, so I very much look forward to like smoking a turkey and slicing it up for lunch. Yeah, you know, for sandwich meat. Simple. Yeah. Yes, absolutely, yeah. but just so essential to just kind of like daily eating to have, you know, a vac sealed pack of of uh, smoked wild turkey. Yeah, I did that last year. I smoked a couple of turkey breasts. Came out really well. Um, yeah, and yeah, that those little uh, cheap slicers that you can have in in at your house uh, make a big difference. You know, because getting that that thinness is is key. Uh, uh, yeah. But, yeah. Uh, Give me the turkey stock, uh, your turkey stock thoughts. Yeah. I mean, the way I do it, um, and I, I, I like things to be very simple. Um, I will take the legs and put them in the crock pot with whatever aromatic, aromatic uh, vegetables I have. Carrot, onion, celery, parsley, onion skins, garlic skins, whatever is laying around. And I'll put them in there and I'll cook them until they're falling apart. <laughs> Uh, which is a long time for a turkey leg. You think of the workout that those legs get. That's why they take so long to cook. Uh, six hours is probably the minimum uh, with plenty of water. Uh, really just fill that thing up as much. And you can also do it in a pot on the stove. And what I'm doing there is basically I'm going to cook those legs uh, and get a lo- as much really good turkey stock as I can out of that because it's very useful to me for Many different things from making rice, uh, making gravies, pot pies, dumplings, soups, anything like that. Is is take that stock, pour that through a strainer, freeze it into appropriate um, portions for your familial situation. For me, a quart is really nice. Uh, and then I take that shredded meat, and from there you can do anything you want. Um, you can make some mole if you if you're in quarantine and you have the time to toast 35 ingredients um, and then grind them. Um, or you can just make simple tacos out of that. You can make egg rolls. Uh, you can uh, put that in a pasta sauce, uh, you know, cream or tomato or, uh, like I said, a pot pie or uh, turkey and dumplings, things like that. Uh, and But I, I just like to have that shredded meat done, to stock done, and it's super simple. I mean, you can also cook a turkey leg whole. I've got a recipe in my book for like a tomato braised turkey leg. It's really good, uh, and I like that a lot. But it's kind of it's a that's a lot of food. I mean, a, a leg quarter on a on a big gobbler feeds a lot of people. Um, but you know, simple approach. You know, I take those breasts, I break them down into portions, back seal those, and uh, and then cook off the uh, the legs, and then I have stock, and then I have shredded meat, and everything gets back sealed in portion. Um, yeah. And done. Although, we'll, typically, I'll, I'll eat the leg meat, the shredded leg, before <laughs> I have to freeze. But I, I'm hearing a lot of things I want to do this year. Egg rolls is definitely one of them. Yeah, um, egg rolls are good f- for sure. But yeah, I've done that with turkey stock in the past too, and I love it. Um, you know, it's always people. I think get. I think we're just like, I think of archery turkey hunting, where people only show the success and not the failure. Archery turkey hunting is very hard. And there's a lot of failure, a lot of wounded birds um, that go part of it. It's the same thing with turkey legs. A lot of people are saying they're cooking them, but you never see the examples of what they've cooked. Because mm. I think a lot of people are just messing it up and throwing them away. I mean, I've it's been a while, but I've thrown turkey legs away before, just just trying new things and trying to get creative and just completely screwing it up. Yeah, it's a no-brainer to, to just 
poach them in the crock pot like that. And then and it's really easy to get those those sinews, those really hard sinews out too. And you just let it cool off and just strip it right off with your hand. And it's so easy. And you get this incredibly beautiful, rich, yellow stock out of it. Um, and, I, you know, I think that's just the best way to go. I love it. I love it. Well, I'm sufficiently hungry. And you got, you sparked my interest in um, pea options in my life because I, I don't want to be... A chink in the armor. <laughs> a chink in the armor. As weird as my armor seems to yeah. be. White white claw and peas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Whoa, the white claw. I was up in Montana last summer. That was weird. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah it was everywhere. Had a lot of, yeah, um, I guess it's not... I, I never had it when I was in Austin. I guess it's not a big thing down there. No, and there's no... I mean, and everybody up there drinks it. There's no... <laughs> cultural or there's no divide like i mean you can be a uh, burly elk guide and uh, drink white claw safely you know it doesn't it's uh, it's not like that everywhere yeah it's a connective tissue that white claw i i remember when i first saw a, bu- a billboard for it i thought that's the dumbest thing i've ever seen look at that idiot drinking that i'd never drink that and then next thing i know i'm nursing a yeah it's midnight and i've I've uh, scorned the whiskey for a Clementine low calorie white claw. <laughs> yeah, it's well, sad, it's like the, it's like the Cordon Bleu, man. It's free country, and you, you just own it, own it. I I know what I like. Yeah, you know, back off, America. Yeah. Let me do what I want to do. <laughs> All right, man. Well, I'm glad uh, you guys are doing okay down there. Um, and I'm sure when this is all over, you guys will find the positives out of this, and there'll be new cool things that you guys are going to be doing, and you'll have. Um, classes full of of eager new hunters and and a bunch of other stuff will be happening that that is well deserved so um thinking about you guys and, and knowing it'll it'll get better thank you yeah i appreciate the support it's nice to have a conversation about some, some things outside of the current situation too so that's right yeah. yeah at least we can at least we can turkey hunt i gotta get out here and i got two i'll, I'll tell the story at some point here soon but i got two toms that are just just pulling on my heartstrings every time i go and take a look at him so i gotta go and apply some energy to how i'm gonna kill him yeah go get him all right man thanks all right thank you all right that's it that is all another episode in the books episode 124 and we're cruising along into may you know, I have to take a quick pause after we finish recording with Pat Durkin and Spencer. Um, Spencer Urban Dictionary is that a yeah Urban Dictionary is that a verb Urban Dictionary? Yeah, I think it is. Um, what wet garden means, and it doesn't mean the same thing as a wet market. Confirmed. So I'm not going to tell you what it means, but you can imagine. Or you can look at Urban Dictionary and find out for yourself. But thanks for thanks for thanks to Pat Durkin for joining us in that unintentional beautiful remark. Uh, really is one of my favorite guys out there and, and um, has a great great part of the meat eater team and going to be hopefully with us more often going forward uh, here on the show. And so thanks to Spencer as well for giving us some laughs and some good stories. And Jesse Griffiths um, again. I say this all the time, but I, I really do mean it. Uh, you know, one of my favorite guys uh, on the face of the earth, one of the best cooks. And I look forward to, Jesse, you son of a bitch, I look forward to the great pea showdown of 2020. Uh, Phil, what are, you, what are your thoughts on, I know you listened to the interview, what are your thoughts on uh, the great pea debate? 
Uh, well, I mean, I think you're wrong. This was established in one of my first appearances on on the podcast. Uh, peas are delicious in every form. And uh, we were talking after the interview with Pat and Spencer how, you know, we could just puree them and put them on a little rubber-coated spoon and fly them into your mouth like it's an airplane land coming in for a landing. I think yeah. that might be the way to go. We'll just have okay. to... We'll have to handcuff your <laughs> cuff your hands between your back and tie you to a chair. <laughs> Here you go, little buddy. That's yeah. fine. That's fine. Like I said, it's just part of the brand now, and that's how I, I got to live my life. I'm not. I'm not backing down from a fight. Uh, so I can't wait till I can actually get on a plane, go down there to Texas, maybe shoot an axis deer, and see if uh, there we can cover it in some sort of pee situation. Um, but the challenge remains, so we'll look forward to that. But next week on the show, Phil, is a pretty interesting one. We're about to record here in the next couple of days an uh, interview with you know, a man named Brett Bond. Um, you'll likely know Brett, but not from his name. You will know him from photos that uh, went around the internet, oh, I'd say about two or three weeks ago. Uh, it was as viral as viral could be. Ended up being talked about on a bunch of podcasts. Joe Rogan touched on it. Um, this this was a set of photos that went viral. And that set of photos was at BBB Alaskan on Instagram. That's Brett's Instagram. His father was attacked by a bear four years ago. And the bear, I don't know how to say this delicately, ripped his face off. Um, but he survived. Um uh, Brett's dad survived. Brett killed the bear, saved his father, and then documented the the gruesome, absolutely gruesome damage with some videos and photos that you will never forget if you see them. Um, and so I love a good story. I know you love a good story, Phil. This one is cringeworthy and also something where we can learn from, from Brett's knowledge and uh, his quick action to save his dad's life and his dad. Uh, spoiler alert is is doing pretty good uh, nowadays. So it's an interesting story. It's connected to kind of how our culture has has come up with bear attacks and a little bit of what's happened during the quarantine. Because I must have had about a thousand people share that post that Brett made with me on Instagram. So next week, the incredible story of Brett Bond saving his father in Alaska from a grizzly bear attack. We'll see you then. Bye bye. Cause I can't go a week without doing wrong. Oh, without doing wrong. After three years of work, our follow up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. 
This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold. 